Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another episode of the Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week is part one of a two-parter with a master entrepreneur, Mr. Cosmo Jones. Now, Cosmo started off as a child actor on NBC, and he soon went on to become quite the entrepreneur, starting several businesses, so many I've actually lost track. So I hope this is inspiring because it was for me. And uh, it's going to be continued next week. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a filmmaker, musician, podcaster, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments because they have an app that will make your life simpler. As always, check out the show notes for more information. Subscribe to the show, email us, leave a review, all that stuff. But most of all, enjoy. Okay, Cosmo, we haven't done uh, I haven't done many of these drinking podcasts, but this will be a drinking episode. Excellent. Can we get a cheers for the audience? That was yes. the sound of two beers clicking together. Exactly. Right, we've got a lot to get to. You've done a lot of amazing things. You own a forty thousand square foot rehearsal space in Los Angeles. You've started many businesses. But uh, in researching you, I found that you were, as a child, a child actor on NBC on a sitcom. That's uh, that is a true statement. What? What? All right. First of all, how did that happen? How did you end up okay on TV as a child? Uh, it all started with Eric Axine, my best friend. Mm-hmm. I'd say we were about seven years old. You were in Los Angeles at the time, Orange County. Okay. Very close, mm-hmm. but still 
40 minutes away. And that, that'll be important in a second. Um, so yeah, Eric got into this acting class for the summer mm-hmm. and he, and he was going to be like out almost every day. And I was thinking, well, that sucks. My best friend's going to be gone all summer. And then he's like, well, why don't you just do the class? And so I ended up doing the class. I didn't care about acting, didn't want to be an actor. I was just goofing around with my friend. You just friend. wanted to hang out with Eric. I just wanted to hang out with Eric. How old were you at the time? So about seven. Oh, wow. So uh, it was the Gene Halliburton School of Acting. I've actually heard of that. I, th- I think it's still around, even though she isn't. Um, but the promise was at the end of the class, they had an agent from the Mary Grady Agency, which is also still around. Mary is not. <laughs> um, that would come, they would do headshots, and they would send stuff out for auditions. Wow. And so, I mean, I'm seven. I don't even really know what's going on. Someone came over with a camera to my house, took some photos. I goofed off. Uh, never thought much about it. But you've barely been speaking English. How do you... You're, so you're memorizing lines at the time? Oh, no. I mean, it was... I, I don't even remember the class, to be honest with you. Yeah. What I do remember is when we started to have to drive to L.A. for auditions. Mm-hmm. So this is very pre-internet um, and very different from how we do casting now, ironically. Um, so they have this black and white headshot. So a lot of times I'd, my mom would drive me all the way up there and we'd wait and we'd finally go in and they'd take one look at you and uh, we were looking for someone who's had more red in their hair or we thought you'd look taller even though i think it had your height and yeah i will grow (laughs) yeah when you're seven your height and weight pretty much changes on a daily basis right um but then i got into a couple commercials um like i said i I really were you trying to yeah i was i was you wanted to be in you wanted to be acting well i guess I, i thought i did yeah, at first, at first I did. Right. But then the the grind of auditions gets to you after a while. Yeah. Um, but then I auditioned for this spectacularly crappy sitcom called His Honor, spelled H-I-Z-Z-O-N-E-R. Wow, that's kind of ahead of the time with the Z's back then. <laughs> it, it really was, and it's really not uh, wasn't as cool and cutting edge as. Uh, as, the As anyone would think. Um, was that the one that ended up on NBC? That was the one that ended up on NBC. Even as a little kid, I, I knew that I, this was some truly awful writing and uh, acting. And it it was, got canceled. Uh, and it's really rare in, in the 70s uh, f- for a show to be canceled. And they, and they don't just air the rest of the episodes. Because they already filmed them. Yeah, they were all filmed. Yeah, they already paid for it. It was that bad. It was awful. Yeah, it was. It was better for the network to put in a rerun of something else right. than to air the show that that nobody, was including there a, myself, wanted to watch. Was there a star attached to it? The only person of note, and it's going to be a deep dig, is was uh, David Huddleston, who went. He went on to play. He played a bunch of roles. Uh, he was like a character actor and this was probably one of the few like lead roles he had, but he was the older Lebowski in the big Lebowski. So okay. he's the one that, that our hero, Jeff Lebowski mm-hmm. got confused with. Right. Um, he's the millionaire mm-hmm. Jeffrey Lebowski. Um, that was him. 
Uh, yeah, that was D David Huddleston. He was the only person of note. He played the mayor in his honor. So you can imagine he was first on the call sheet. <laughs> so, you, But you started acting just to be with your friend Eric. Just to hang out with Eric. And just, just for the same reasons, I stopped doing it. Because after that one sitcom experience, I w had to stay up in L.A. And I was going to school on the set. And so then I was missing all my friends again. Right, and I'm just like, and the drive and everything else, and I, 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 as I said from the beginning, I didn't really care all that much about yeah acting. No, I had no desire to do it. But this is before I discovered music, so it was you know something to do. I'd always liked creative things. So it kind of it, the opportunity kind of came to you easily. Like you did the class, and you you liked the class enough, but acting didn't really appeal to you that much. No, I think uh, I think Eric and I, Eric was more excited about it than i was but sadly eric didn't get any calls oh, for no. single audition for anything did he hate you for that i don't think so mm -hmm. i just saw him he came into new york uh a couple weeks ago You're and still I hung friends. Out with him. absolutely nice so did you realize at the time that it was kind of a big deal to be on nbc yeah by then i, I oh uh by then i would have been nine or nine ten Okay, so after the class, you were seven, and yeah, it was took the a little summer while. of seven, and then I was auditioning, and then you know I was on a laundry detergent commercial, I was on a fast food commercial. Couldn't even tell you what the brands were or if they were on anymore. Mm -hmm. um, what did your parents think of this? I mean, they're the ones driving you around to all these. One part they liked is I made enough money on the sitcom that it paid for my um, high school, my private private high school okay yeah so um at least my parents didn't like spend the money on on frivolous things like i don't know themselves themselves <laughs> <laughs> screedy bastards were they concerned for you because all of a sudden you're not in a, in a school with other kids and you're basically in school on set yeah, living was, this strange life yeah um no they they were they were all right with it do they have to be with you on set? Not all the time. Mm -hmm. mm -mm. So your mom and your dad? Well, they would trade off. It, it, it was convenient because my dad owned a lumberyard in Montebello. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if it was during the week, it wasn't really a big deal for him to come get me. What would they do while you're on set? Just sit. Just sit around. Yeah, with no iPads, no iPhones. No VR goggles. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I mean, I think they actually had to... Uh, do you recall magazines? I remember magazines. I think, I think my parents might have actually read one before. Wow. That's, but that's kind of a big sacrifice for them, too, because while they're sitting on set, they can't be working and they can't be living their life. That's true. But let's face it. My mom never really worked. <laughs> she didn't work? She was seemed to be busy as hell and had things that she would refer to as jobs but i classify a job as something that pays you money aha uh -huh. well yeah. what about raising kids that's yeah was she doing that or no <laughs> as best she could right in her own special way uh-huh um brothers and sisters yes one you, of each one of each collect them all and uh are you the middle i'm the baby but we're all 10 years apart 10 years apart Yes, and we all have different dads, and they all died under mysterious circumstances. Each and every one of them. Each and every one of them. While they're married to the same mother, mm -hmm. I'm seeing uh, a very obvious suspect here. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. 
Really? No, um, my, my dad died of natural causes, but, uh, uh, my sister's dad, that was a weird, that was a whole weird mess up. Uh, while he was married to your mom, uh, they were married, had my sister and then almost immediately, uh, got separated or divorced or something. We don't really know the story. My mom didn't even tell my sister her dad's actual name, like, it, she she shuffled a couple characters around, you know. It was like close to the name, but not the exact name. Why? We don't know, because she's nuttier and squirrel shit. Your mom? Yeah, she's a little kooky. She's kooky, huh? Yeah. But didn't she want your sister's dad in your sister's life? No, I think <laughs> uh, I'm not. I, I don't mean to be just sitting here slamming my mom, um, but. Uh, this this one i think she married because he had money he was about 27 years older than her Mm, um and uh i you know i think he had some kind of issue he was either loud or i mean it was never like an abusive relationship but i think he drank or it was verbally abusive what was the official cause of death um that i mean tbd we don't know (laughs) we don't know for sure um yeah i think it might have had something to do with alcohol like it might have been cirrhosis or something like mm-hmm. that and that was her second that was the second one and then, yeah the first one uh was my uh brother's dad and um so your brother's 20 years older than you yeah we never even lived in the same house right that's interesting because you i mean you know only know each other he was only an adult really he was already an adult when you were born yeah big time Mm-hmm. So you're brothers, but you're still kind of distant. Yeah, you know, it's probably similar to, like, having an uncle. Right. Um, uncle brother. Yeah, I didn't really grow up with uncles either, so that was uh, I, what I imagine having an uncle might be like. Mm-hmm. Did your mom keep, so you, did your mom keep uh, his dad from him as well? No. Okay, she let. That was she. She bailed early on uh, on that one, and I have less details about that than I do. But he else. he passed away too. Huh? Yes. What was the official cause of his death? I don't remember. Uh huh. I plead the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> Does your brother know? He probably would if mm-hmm. I asked him. Right. But I guess yeah, he's so removed from you. You know? Did you ever meet the guy? No. Right. I didn't know they. Uh, I would assume they both died before I was born. Would that be a stepfather? For me? Yeah. No, right? No, because my dad and my mom had me directly. Yeah, right. There was no other interference or other people or switching around or <laughs> wife swapping. or. <laughs> hey, it was the 70s. It was. <laughs> yeah. So your dad died of natural causes. He did. He was a good guy. He... uh Second I turned 18, he bolted back to Arkansas to get away from my mom. <laughs> really? So you think he just stuck around for you? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, did you get a sense at the time of what their relationship was like? Oh, I saw it every day. Yeah. My mom's just super tough to deal with and is, it can be just... Tough in what way? Like demanding? Ex- just exasperating and um, not always truthful about things and... You know, a bit manipulative. 
Yes, I know a lot of manipulative people. What would she try to manipulate from them to get them to do chores? Uh, I, I know, honestly, I think it, it's, it's uh, you know, channeling my inner unqualified psychologist. I think it's more about attention. It's just like needing needing people to pay attention to her, right, like regardless of, of the truth or anything else kind of like playing the victim being passive aggressive yeah. that kind of stuff yeah yeah she could she could do uh what my dad called crocodile tears like mm-hmm. on cue right she should have been the actor yeah, maybe you got the acting gene from her clearly i got the talent from her <laughs> <laughs> uh i'm not i was not a talented actor as you can see my acting career went nowhere but, but you didn't have an interest in it. No, that's true. And I was an adorable kid. But I'm telling you, once once I hit 12 or 13 and things started to change, <laughs> she just went all, all downhill from there. From what a little uh, you've told me about your mom, it does sound like she would be someone super excited. She sounds like a stage mom. You know, she sounds like someone that would be excited to have a son that was on TV. Because that brings her attention. It does, but... Uh, then there's that conflict of, is it really bringing her attention or is it bringing me attention? And how, how do I balance it so that more of the attention flows to me and not to the adorable child? Did you, did you feel like you were competing for attention with No. Her? I mean, as a kid, I don't think I even... No, it's, these, are, these are all things you learn afterwards. It's like, oh, that's why she was like that. Right. Yeah, as you get older, you start to see your parents as just people. Yeah, and you have an older sister and an older brother who have already lived through it. And so as you start to get older, they tell you more of the stories and stuff. Because people from those times, like my mom and dad, you know, they, don't, they never talked about anything mm-hmm. um, important. <laughs> to, to you? Yeah. Right. Um, it was all about the sheltering. Right. Well, that's also the generation, too. I mean, yeah, you were born is. in the 70s. That's so different than and they were really old when they had me they were how old 45 for your, mo- your mom was 45 my mom i guess my dad was 45 and that would have made my mom i guess 43 i think they're two years apart wow which is really rare in the 70s and that yeah i always i always said that i i probably was a mistake but um they swear up and down that wasn't the case and since i'm my dad's only child yeah you know i would imagine they probably did it on Boy, they rolled the dice on that one, huh? Yeah, they did. You got to be careful with that old old sperm. Was uh, your older brother, the one that's 20 years older, was he in your life when you were a kid? Yeah, but he, uh, um, let's see, I guess he was in college, and he, he wasn't close by. Like, he was mostly either in San Diego or um, part of the time he's in Pennsylvania, so. Couldn't you get a sense of your mom through the relationship she had with him? Oh, well, you know, my, my brother and my mom are the ones that don't even talk to each other anymore. So, uh-huh. you know, my brother has a, has like a much harsher view of her than, than I do. So well, well, she was probably pretty young when she had him. Yeah. Really young. Yeah. With you, at least she had some more experience and <laughs> right. age and wisdom. She'd already damaged two children, so <laughs> by then I... she was an expert at her craft. Yeah, how do I damage this one in a new way? <laughs> I got to top myself. Yeah. How about your sister? Did you get a sense of what, growing up, did you get a sense of your mom through their relationship? 
Yeah, my um, I, my sister jokes that she gave birth to my mother because we noticed things skip a generation, and my sister now has a daughter, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny because she has, as a kid, she had some of the similar like qualities that qualities air quotes that right, my mom right. that my mom had traits yeah <laughs> and then my sister is just like my grandmother i did know my grandmother on my mother's side okay yeah and she's just like the nicest like most perfect uh grandmother you could ever want would she whisper in your ear your mom's a little bad oh my god no she wouldn't ever say anything bad about anybody she wouldn't mm-hmm. no um so yeah that's apparently it's kind of looks like it skips a, a generation but you know the good news is is my sister is an extraordinary parent mm-hmm. um and so there's very little chance of my niece going full-blown mom yeah <laughs> i believe but we don't really think your mom murdered your dad right i wouldn't say murdered just drove them <laughs> to an early grave <laughs> which is totally legal it's yeah <laughs> Not go to jail for being annoying. It's actually kind of a tradition. <laughs> so you, so you're on set. You're an actor, and you knew at the time that it was garbage while you're doing the show. Or I just, yeah, it just. I had watched enough television, and let's see, I would have been. Um, you were on nine when it aired. It was seventy nine, so I was almost. I was about ten. Okay. And, um, did you watch it when it aired? Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Um, yeah, I remember I'd watch it at home and then, I mean, at that time it's so different now. People see themselves on screen all the time. Yeah. Films or cameras are everywhere. But at that time it was pretty rare to see yourself. Yeah. I mean, if I, that was probably the coolest show and tell thing that I could do at, at my school, uh, by far. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I remember, uh, you know, just sitting there watching it on the on the old console TV at home, and then going to school the next day. And you know, a lot of my friends watched it too because they knew. Do they treat you like a celebrity? No, they didn't. No, because when you're kids, you know that you actually act natural, and you don't build up all these facades and right. affectations yet. So, yeah. um, no, it was really chill. How did you, how did it, do you remember how it felt watching it? Because, you know, there's so much, you're just on set filming it, but you don't, you're not part of the edit. You don't, and then all of a sudden you're seeing this. No, I actually went in and did all my own editing. Yeah. ADR. It was in the contract. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I violated every child labor law you could. Um, But it must have been a big deal because you're just on set filming scene by scene, part by part. Then all of a sudden you watch this finished, color corrected, edited mixed thing and you're it looks yep. like a finished product with a laugh track was it a laugh track oh there had to have been yeah because yeah, it wasn't a live audience i know that no live audience yeah it was right. definitely a laugh track yeah um what else do i remember do you remember watching and just being like wow this is professional yeah i remember watching it and i do remember thinking um for how long i was on screen i just remember doing so much more and wondering where all that was right you know like you said about not really understanding the edit of it so yeah because you're just spending hours and days and then all of a sudden it's a 22 minute episode and you're in parts of it mm-hmm. you're like that's it yeah yeah and technically they didn't even cut any any lines or anything mm-hmm. um 
it's, it's kind of hard to remember, but I just, it felt like I did a way more work and then I was only on screen for, you know, like 30 seconds here and 60 seconds there. At what point did you realize it was garbage? Well, I mean, it just, I was an avid reader even that early on. It was one of the things I really took to when I was a kid. One of my earliest memories is realizing that I could just read to myself. I used to read out loud to my mom or dad. Mm -hmm. And so if they got up to go do something, I'd sit there and wait for them to come back so I could continue reading. Uh And then I just, it suddenly clicked that, oh, I can just read this to myself. I don't have to read it out loud. And that's one of my earliest memories at like three or four or something like that. Well, that might have been like your first epiphany. It was my first, definitely. (laughs) And last. Um, (laughs) So did you read out loud to yourself? (laughs) No, that's when I realized that I could read it and I don't have to say it. I could just read. I just. Yeah. That's like when you discovered your your ego or your id or whatever is the other person inside of yourself (laughs) right that's when i first uh discovered i had did um (laughs) but there i there was a point there which we've uh, traveled way west of what when did you realize the show was oh okay so i just would read the script and i i just like it was it was i knew it was supposed to be a comedy but nothing made me laugh Right, but did you realize, well, I'm not used to reading screenplays, this is not a No, novel. I'm seven, I don't have all that reason to draw upon. Right. I just re- read it, and it just, it, I just knew it wasn't good. Yeah. It's hard, though, sometimes with screenplays, like, have you ever read, I've a, a, read a Seinfeld script before, and if you don't know the actors and the characters, you're, it's just stuff that's happening, so sometimes that could be the case. Absolutely. Um and I was probably combining it with watching how how it was shot and and not really understanding how things get shot and that everything's out of order and right um, and they you know they have all these fallback takes that they do and mm-hmm. um, so yeah I just that there definitely could have just been some ignorance on on my part I just I just remember thinking and then seeing it on tv and just knowing that from what the other shows i'd seen on tv mm-hmm. that just this just wasn't as good wasn't measuring up yeah. how did you feel when they canceled it well i had already told we had already shot like the whole season and at the end of it that's when i was just like i don't i don't want to do that i don't want to be gone for mm. you know uh however long it was you don't want to seem like forever at the time yeah, you don't want to donate all your time to that. No, I, just, I was totally missing all my friends. You're a diva at seven. <laughs> no, this, by then I was ten, so I had every right to be. Of after, course, yeah. After three years of, <laughs> of grueling Hollywood uh, casting and driving and auditioning and all that. And then uh, eleven is when I discovered music. So mm-hmm. then everything went out the window. You discovered... Oh, just the joy of listening to music? You no, were- I already had that uh, uh, from an early age because my sister being 10 years older was always playing music and then, you know, she'd give me her records when she'd wear them out. Right, yeah. So I had some really scratched the fuck up. Uh, so you had Black Sabbath Paranoid. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was one of my favorites. That's the job of an older sibling. Oh, yeah. She gave me some good stuff. Um uh, and it was all over the place, too, because sometimes it would be something my brother handed down to my sister. So it was just this odd combination of, you know, you'd flip past 
Black Sabbath, and then there would be like Jim Croce or something like right. that. Um, so you, Seals and Crofts, and uh, and then I only had an AM radio, so I listened to Mighty Six Ninety, mm-hmm. which was the disco R and B station mm-hmm. of the time. And so I think between um, my good buddy Kevin Burns learning guitar and steering more towards the metal side of things and mm-hmm. teaching me like Scorpions and Judas Priest and Iron Maiden songs. And then I had this other side of me that really you, wanted to play drums. Playing, were you playing an instrument at the time? Yeah, I got my, that's, yeah. I'm, I'm jumping ahead like you know the whole story and you don't. That's right, yeah. maybe part of why we're here. Um, my brother-in-law gave me mm-hmm. a guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted drums. My neighbors persuaded my parents that that wasn't a good idea. Yeah, well, they don't want to listen to drums. The houses were very close together yeah. where I grew up. Because mm-hmm. um, I did, for a while, I had a snare drum and a cymbal. Um, can, afterwards, I, I can pl- give you a couple pictures for your uh, nice. for your records. And, and you just never went back to acting? You were done with it? No, that was that was it. After after that whole sitcom thing, I never did another audition. Or no, no commercials? Nothing. nothing. No, I think I... Just I told my mom I was I was done, and I think they were tired of driving back and forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, would you get sad or disappointed when you went to an audition and didn't get the job? Jeez, uh, um, I don't remember feeling that way. Okay, so it, they didn't have to console you or any of that. No, I I never like had a through a fit or anything like that. I don't. I don't think I took it real seriously. Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to like when I'm trying to get an audition for a band and not getting it, you know, I remember how crushing that was. I certainly didn't feel that about uh, acting, and it's probably because I just really, didn't, I really didn't care about it. Right, and all the money you made from acting, they blew on private high school. Yeah, which now, <laughs> now I'm glad they did because I'm not a total idiot. What was wrong with the public high school there? Uh, not, not good enough. Yeah, even back then, it just. It it wasn't yeah great uh-huh. because I saw uh, in your bio that you paid for college yourself yeah by doing bail recovery I had all kinds of odd jobs car repossessions true all right you got to tell me about so bail recovery so basically people go to a bail bondsman and they they borrow money from a shady dude and you have to get that bail money back okay let's. Take a step back. Um, it actually started out with liability fraud investigation and workers' comp fraud investigation. Okay. Um, I, I did do a couple car repossessions, um, but it was mostly following people around who made a claim with an insurance company saying they either got hurt, like a slip and fall in a supermarket, or they were working on a job and they got So you're hurt. investigating claims trying to see if they're false or not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what was great about that job is if I got a tour or something like that, I could totally go do that and come back. A, a music and, tour. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Weren't you in high school at the time? How old were you when you? Oh doing no, no, this? no. This was my early twenties. Okay. And then you did this to pay for college, or you're just doing it odd jobs? I did all sorts of odd jobs. Let's see. I think by the time I did no, by the time I was doing that, I, I was probably twenty three. So I was I was done with okay with college. Uh huh. And you're a musician. 
yeah, that was I went to school for music for uh, to get a BFA in music composition. Music composition, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and then I, you know, wanted to play in bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I thought I wanted to be a session musician. That's what I thought I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. As a drummer? No, as a guitar player. Uh-huh. Um, I, I just always wanted to play drums, and I would whenever I could. Like, when I started playing in bands, I was always annoying whoever the drummer was by playing on his kit and stuff like that. Yeah. And guitar session guitar player is probably the most competitive one there is i mean yeah it's pretty it was brutal back then it's i'm sure it's just as brutal now mm-hmm. um if i could go back and tell my younger self i i would have told him to get really good at bass bass yep mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah because you know guitar players and drummers were a dime a dozen drummers too huh oh yeah this place is silly with drummers right yeah yeah okay so you're you're a musician you're you were doing some touring already, and then you're just working these odd jobs. Well, I'd either I was playing with bands. Like sometimes I ended up in some cool situations. Like one of the earliest ones, um, while I was still doing private investigation, all that was the Adolescents, which was a pretty classic punk band that yeah. was around even before I started playing music. They've mm-hmm. been around for a while, and you know they've had a lot of different members over the years. But um, I did a tour and a record. Um, and played a lot of local LA shows with them for about a year. Um, and they already kind of had a name, huh? Yeah. I mean, they uh, they weren't raking in the money, that's for sure. But um, but people are coming out to their shows, and you got yeah. a taste of that. Yeah, we, we, could, we could afford to do the van tours, where right. most of the time we slept in the van. But at that age, you're like, people are coming out to see me, there's an audience. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So you work in these odd jobs. All right, so... I can't believe they gave a 23-year-old the job of finding fraud in a claim. That seems like that would be top-level stuff. Yeah, it's not. It's sitting around, waiting and waiting, and then just trying to catch someone on video doing something. So tell me, would you catch someone? Yeah, we... Oh, God, we had we had this... Uh, this would have been on tape. We had this tape of greatest hits that my boss would take around to insurance companies uh-huh. uh, that always got him psyched to hire. What What was it? Uh, there were just different different uh, things we had managed to capture. Like um, what? Tell me. Uh, my I think my favorite one um, was a dude i still remember his name to this day mm-hmm. i don't think i'll get in trouble for saying this his name was because it rhymed his name was petronio castillo Aha, nice <laughs> and uh when we couldn't find where someone lived or if they gave like an address that was probably a relative um which happened a lot when you're committing fraud uh the insurance company would set up an appointment with their doctor which mr castillo would be required to go uh-huh. and then from there we would just sit in the office like we were a patient or something like that so we could find out what he looked like because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times we didn't have a picture or it was an old picture um and we had no information so we'd have to figure out who he was like you know and that they'd call his name for him to go in and then we'd have to wait till he came out of the appointment and see which car he went to and and so this guy was you know full-blown rolling around in a wheelchair saying that he had a, a back injury and um that he you know he was like never gonna work again had a huge claim um and uh so we finally we finally pinned this guy down uh and uh 
and we follow we're following him and it took two of us um yeah. because you're dealing with these big parking lots you never know where which way people are going to exit right so for like for like really important stuff we uh we'd, we'd work as a team and we had radios um so most of the time it'd just be two sometimes it'd be three this is some spy stuff it, yeah it's really uh there'd be two seconds of excitement for every 200 hours of uh absolutely <laughs> boring nonsense um but uh petronia castillo got a flat tire mm-hmm. and he had someone with him that was helping him yeah but he just popped out of the car like it was a no thing ran back to the trunk got the jack switched the tire picked up his wheelchair, moved it out of the way uh-huh. uh, to do all this, threw it back in the trunk, got in the car, um, got all of that on tape. And then when he gets home, he lives on the second floor of an apartment building. Yeah. And we see him just like the other guy's not helping at all. He just grabs his wheelchair and he's literally running up the stairs because oh. he must have been late for probably dinner right. by then. I don't, I don't know. But so that was a classic one. Uh, another one was a guy who had a mental health claim against Xerox for like chemicals. And we caught him like almost as close as you and I are. Yeah. Shooting heroin. So wait, why does that disqualify him? Because if he's shooting heroin, he's got bigger problems than whatever his, his claim is. His mental health claim. Yeah. But he, wait, he's, what was his claim that he, Oh, he said that the the chemicals. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, he had some job where he was claiming exposure to some chemical was causing um, all these issues, and you know, of course, he claimed not but to maybe be on he drugs started, or anything. May, oh, he he did say that that he yeah. wasn't using because he could have said, "Oh, the the mental issues caused me to start using. I was trying to self medicate." Yeah, people weren't that clever back then, he or was, or. <laughs> Tolerant of any kind of self medication. Or I have a criminal mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that might be. <laughs> so, uh, so Pe- Castillo? Petronio Castillo. Petronio Castillo. He got busted. So, this is a crime. Not only does he not get his money. Yeah, they, these guys never ended up, they would, it would almost always settle out of court. Like, I, the, the guy with the, um, the heroin uh, incident. He had been asking for something like five hundred thousand mm. dollars. I, I think that one went to trial, and I think the lawyer tried to back down to something as low as like five hundred dollars, and and they they wouldn't give him a penny, which right. was great. But they don't actually, they don't. rarely prosecute for that stuff. No, nobody's nobody really goes to to jail for it, that. It doesn't become a criminal charge. No, um, I'd say. You know, I did that job for off and on for quite a while, and so I probably worked a minimum of uh, four to five hundred cases over mm-hmm. three to four years, I'd say. Wow! And I probably went to trial ten times total. So most of the time, people are telling the truth. No, they're settling out of court, or it, they they didn't usually hire us if they didn't have a reason to believe. Um, fraud was it as was it play well that makes the job more juicy <laughs> yeah no we generally when we we're going out there we knew that we'd probably catch him doing something mm-hmm. another classic uh that my brother helped me with i was uh on a case and i was down in san diego and i, I happened to notice that the person um 
that we were going after had a had a car for sale. So I and I just didn't I wanted to get things over with quickly. So I I ran down to the payphone and called my brother and said, "Hey, will you come will you call this number because I got the number off the for sale sign mm-hmm. and ask to look at the car and I want you to like get under the car, ask a lot of questions, try to get her. It was a woman, mm-hmm. I don't remember her name. Um to, you know, to just do as much uh, stuff because she had a, supposedly had a back injury, couldn't bend over. Her claim was that she hurt herself. Yeah, she hurt herself. This was a workers' comp claim, and uh, she had a back injury, so she said that she couldn't stand for more than a few minutes at a time, couldn't bend over. You know, all these things that she she couldn't do. And so my brother comes over, and you know, he's 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 a nut, um, and he he just goes through goes through the paces oh just over the top uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> poor woman didn't know what hit her <laughs> so you saw her moving around oh totally. i had everything i needed and more i was just if there was a way that i i was just, i was trying to telepathically uh tell my brother okay we're good <laughs> just, just go right right <laughs> so people don't realize that these companies are hiring basically spies sometimes um a lot of times if they have uh, a lawyer, especially one that's, you know, one of these ambulance chasers types, mm-hmm. which, you know, stereotypes exist for a reason, um, they'll, they'll warn their clients to, you know, be on the, on the lookout for, yeah for this. So yeah, there, there would sometimes be cases where it was, it was very difficult. We know right away that, oh, they're, they're aware that they're being followed. And so we had ways of dealing with that too. It just usually involved sometimes up to four of us. Mm-hmm. Um, playing a lot of, uh, you know, just like flipping around and trying to pick people up and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, cause people who really wanted to make sure they weren't being followed, they'll, they'll do a lot of things. Like they'll drive around the block three times uh-huh. or, you know, they'll suddenly, uh, make it a legal U-turn. Um, so once they know they're being followed. Yeah, and then they'll just do it out of habit. That'll just be their routine. Mm-hmm. They'll just do it all the time. And then and then you won't know, well, did I just get burned or uh, Right. So um yeah, that's that's when it would get tough and it, it would take three or four of us and and one of our guys rode a motorcycle and that that was really beneficial. Yeah. Were you ever nervous for your life? Um there was only one time where I got pretty freaked out when I was in a bad area and I just, I wasn't paying attention. And so I'm like, I think someone might've known I was in the back of, I had this Nissan Pathfinder and mm-hmm. the back was all blacked out, but I, I took my dog with me and he's this, he was this huge like shepherd Rottweiler mix mm-hmm. and it would get a little warm. And so he'd start panting and the whole car would shake. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was also uh, it really sometimes annoyed my boss because sometimes the the footage that I would shoot had a little bit of a bounce to it and and the dog you, panting in the, yeah, the audio. No, there's no audio. That's the thing. Um, video is the only thing admissible at court, so the mic mm. wasn't even enabled. So you're just silently getting nauseous watching the right <laughs> watching the video of some of this stuff because sometimes we'd have to get pretty far away and we had these telephoto like camera type lenses mm-hmm. on this camera and they were pretty big and they were kind of heavy so but they could shoot a quarter mile away if you wanted them to Mm -hmm. but if you were doing that um you had to be really still or have it balanced in in some way and if you're in a hurry and trying to get something you don't have time to 
like be all prepared and everything. Was this job more dangerous than the bail recovery? Because bail recovery no. sounds real. Okay, dangerous. that that's that's why I had to preface uh, this with um, the lead up to that. Yeah. Uh, so they passed a law um, in favor of insurance companies, which was a legitimate law, um, but it meant that I forget the exact parameters, but it essentially said that you could not make a workers' comp claim. Um, 30 days after being fired or or quitting. Mm-hmm. So if you had a claim, you had to make it within that 30 days unless there were real extenuating circumstances like it it didn't present until 2 months later and right. you can prove that. So that put a huge damper on the amount of fake claims that would happen. Right. Because a lot of the fake claims came from people losing their job, getting unemployment or not getting unemployment whenever that would run out um or they hadn't found another job, that's when they get it in their idea. I need money. What am I going to do? Right. Oh, you know what? I could say that I hurt my back when I was working for these guys or whatever. So mm-hmm. that's, that put a huge damper in our business. So um, that's when we started pulling extra jobs, um, doing bail recovery. <laughs> and that was dangerous. And um, as a musician... I lived in fear of breaking my fingers or right. uh, you or know, someone breaking your fingers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I would say I did that for about a month. Um, and I, then I, that just wasn't for me too dangerous. Yeah. It's you it, have any close calls? Uh, no, my, my partner Dean did though. What happened? And that's him? his, his story about that was like, yeah, I, I just, I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. He, he got in a situation where he, I, I don't even remember the details. I just know that um, he thought that he was just dealing with one person and there ended up being another person. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it was a really close scrape for him. He, yeah. Once you're involved with bail bonds, that's pr- getting pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. We were kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel there. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So is, did that lead to your uh, <laughs> your job repossessing cars? Um, because I had done uh, the private investigation stuff, even before uh, the bail recovery thing happened, um, before I worked for that, for, uh, that investigations company, uh, one of my odd jobs was working in a place that rented um, exotic cars. Once again, air quotes. 
They um, rented exotic cars. Yeah, we're talking like convertible Mustangs, Corvettes, uh, stuff like that. Not mm-hmm. not like you know full on Lamborghinis. Right. It, they actually did have a couple Ferrari three hundred eights. Uh, all the uh, all the expensive cars were salvaged from some horrible wreck, um, and and put back together by this dodgy Australian bodywork guy named Richard. Uh-huh. And um, and they drove like absolute shit, but people who had never driven a 308 had no idea. Right. So they'd rent these cars and they were death traps. It was actually kind of, it was, looking back on it, I I was like, oh, I can't, I can't even believe I stayed there that long. But what was your, what your job was repossessing? Oh, so no, I had worked for them. No, just, I just worked there as like uh, one of the people working in the office. Okay. This was when I was still in school before I started doing the investigation. It was like one of the last jobs I had while I was still in college. Because mm-hmm. um, they would, they were cool about working around my college schedule. Like I could work Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, because I had college Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Right. Did you not, did you ever want to be a, a spy or a private investigator? God, no. Um I didn't want any of these jobs. Yeah. They, this is all just like shit that just fell in my lap. Right. Um, my friend Dean, who was also a guitar player, uh, he already had the job at the investigation company. And he's like, dude, you want to come work here? And, and, and the pay was at the, for back then right. was good compared to what I was and flexible. Used to getting. And it, it was flexible. And you got also got paid mileage, which... Um, you know, kind of worked in your favor. Yeah. Even though you racked up a bunch of miles on your car. Um, so yeah, it was, and this is all in California. It's all in California. California. Yeah. they like to hire people that had no experience because after you do it for a while, you just get burnt out. So they didn't want to hire people from other companies that just had bad habits that right. fell asleep or just didn't care. Right. And you come with an open mind. Yeah. Yeah, so because I had worked for the car rental company before, they had a couple incidents where people would abscond with cars, and <sighs> and so I'd I'd have to, I'd have to go mm-hmm. get the cars back. So after all these odd jobs, what was like the first solid job where you felt like, all right, I can't work all these crappy odd jobs anymore? Yeah, that's that's when I uh, got my first, uh, and I this is I'm really stretching. Uh, the credibility here my first design job <laughs> mm-hmm. visual design yeah graphic design yeah yeah because um out of necessity i ended up because i always loved computers and we used computers um you know type up all our reports and stuff and you know i definitely had them through college but when i was a kid you know it's it's like you this was apple II right e times right. you know no 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 real computer experience it's just the uh I just loved computers, so I even I just even remember enjoying typing up my reports. I thought it was so awesome that because uh, my boss was a, totally in love with technology, like you know when, when modems came around, you know he made sure we had modems, and we, he was so excited when we could submit our reports electronically. So I got to learn my way around a computer, um, and so then out of necessity, I would start making flyers for my band. Mm-hmm. Um, someone had to do it. On the computer. On the computer. So uh, I learned I learned Photoshop, like a really early version of Photoshop. Photoshop like, 1.0? No, I think it was 3.0. Uh-huh. And they had just announced a new feature called Layers. Oh, wow. Right. So imagine working in Photoshop without Layers, those of you who know Photoshop. Um, 
And what was the other? Did you always have a good sense of, did you always have an interest or a natural inclination towards visual art? No. I, I had... Because usually I, musicians aren't visually inclined. Is that true? Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of musicians, that, like, they're really good with audio stuff, but the visual sense is not there. Huh. Well, uh, I don't know. Um, I always really appreciated... Uh, uh, I loved album art. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I remember... That's one of the things I... When you talk about if technology is making things better or making things worse, right? I, I just can't even imagine not having the experience of being a kid, having your allowance money, going to the record store with enough money in your pocket to buy one, maybe two, if you didn't go nuts on the first one, yep. and buy like a double album or something, and... And just like spending two hours in the record store, yeah, pawing through everything, maybe listening to something if they had a listening station, yeah, really taking in all the artwork, mm-hmm. and and sometimes you'd buy albums because the artwork was just so cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I always had a huge appreciation for for that, but no no training, never took classes, couldn't even draw very well. Mm-hmm. I think I had good penmanship because... So the computer was perfect, really. computer was awesome. <laughs> yeah. So no. if it wasn't for this boss that had the computer and the modem that introduced you to it, you might not have ever gone on this graphic design. That, that's entirely possible because, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he paid for the computer. That I had a pretty decent like IBM PC clone. Mm-hmm. Um, it was definitely a computer that was more money than I, I could afford for, right. for, my, for my own. Um, and uh so yeah i mean i i was really into computers so it's hard to say i probably would have finagled another way to get a computer if i didn't have that one but yeah it was definitely helpful yeah so you started using photoshop i learned photoshop i learned a program that's not around anymore called freehand but mm-hmm. it's adobe illustrator is basically the same thing yeah and then um i learned a program that's also barely around anymore um well first i think i was using I don't even remember if it's called Publisher or something like that. Did you feel like you just naturally clicked with the language of computers? Yeah. Like, I understood computers. I mm. understood the programs and everything. Yeah. But I was shit at design. Uh-huh. But, How did you get better? Well, I just wanted the flyers to be better. Right. And um, so I would just take any criticism from any of my idiot band members. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of them had valid things or they they just give me they'd show me stuff uh, that other people had done and so i got really good at looking at what other people uh had done and just like maybe pulling elements from this and that right and and trying to see if i could replicate that Mm -hmm. and so i think i got really good at at being able to see something and then and try to make something similar to it give it that polish that professional look yeah, and stuff you don't even realize is is professional, just in, in how you space things and and how you use negative space and all these other things people yeah. don't think to do. It's like when you're in a band and you have a flyer, you just want to write all over it with right. all, all the stuff you can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very. It can be kind of an ethereal thing to to understand. Right, and then when you look back, it's like the the coolest flyers would be either the punk rock ones, which you know look like like a satanic decoupage mm-hmm. incident um but those were cool 
And um, and then yeah, I don't know. You you look at some bands that were just more forward thinking, mm-hmm. where it would it would be just so simple, just like a powerful image, right? And it, their band name and and like the the club and the date would be in smaller letters, and and it just looked slick, you know. It looked like what the pros were doing, right? They understood negative space, not crowding it, yeah, making it visually pleasing on the eye, not using thirty four different fonts, right? Um, <laughs> and then you know you know not using the stupid fonts that come with every computer. Yeah. So you just learned this on your own. Totally on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I would get um, other people to ask me, well, can you, can you do one for the show for all the bands? Mm -hmm. And you know, we could throw you, I mean, I'd be lucky to get 20 bucks or something like that. Um, But then I started to like be able to, to do like album covers. And back then was, was very, much cassette and then early early days of cd yeah and so did you build this into a business oh not really um because i ended up getting a job at uh thornton media services Mm -hmm. which was as i said my first design job um you ended up building that in that experience into getting a graphic design job i warmed my way in through uh, another friend of mine who was also a band member that worked there because mm-hmm. I was like I don't think I could I could do that I mean I know how to use the programs but I don't know like I don't have the have the experience he's like just you'll figure it out it's not that hard right um, but it, it actually was kind of hard uh, but you learned on the job totally learned on the job mm-hmm. paid learning yeah and fortunately the bar was pretty low because this is uh, this is pretty rock bottom as you can get in the in the design industry, this uh-huh. place was basically like a glorified uh, uh, Kinkos. You know what I mean? Without yeah. without the self serve copy. So you're designing stuff that people bring in. They're like, I don't know what to do. Can you just design? Oh, something? I mean, it would be uh, like it would be like print newsletters for um, the Los Angeles flower market. That was right. that was like a regular one. I remember <laughs> doing. Uh, what what happened next? What led to your? Because you're quite the entrepreneur. What led you to start your own company. This episode is to be continued. Till next week.